This is The Medical Republic, a podcast for curious GPs. I'm Francine Crimmins. And I'm Felicity Nelson. And this morning we're joined by Penny Durham, uh, our political reporter, who's going to unpack some of the events of the weekend. Hi, Penny. Hi, Felicity. Hi, Francine. Yes, it's quite an emotional weekend. Um, I do hope every opinion pollster in the country is really questioning their career choices now as they turn up to work on this lovely Monday morning. Uh, the Coalition hasn't won a poll in several years, and yet it romped at home. As for the result, I, I don't think you need to be a Labour fanatic to be disappointed. You only have to be a moderate social progressive. And if you want climate change taken seriously, women and Indigenous people, it's so and so on, taken seriously, then this is not a great result for you. I really thought the dial had shifted on those issues, but it seems not, at least not across the country. But, you know, I'll leave others to speculate about why that happened. So we're really jumping the gun, aren't we? Just in case anyone was, you know, enjoying their weekend and maybe not watching 24-hour news coverage, the coalition government has won the federal election and it is majority government with 77 seats as of this morning. What does that mean for GPs? For GPs, uh, it's largely business as usual. Last time I was on here, I ran through what was promised in the budget, the unfreezing of GP visit rebates and the start of a more continuous care funding model for chronic disease patients, uh, which are both good things. The first was necessary. The second one was a good move to modernise the MBS. And uh, there was also more funding, about $200 million for the quality incentive payments for general practices and... The aged care incentives for GPs, which have been slated for scrapping, will now be retained. And uh, the Coalition also committed a small amount of money towards setting up a rural generalist pathway, which was high on the rural doctors' lobbying list. And what are they missing out on? So everyone thought that Labour was going to get in, and now they haven't. What what are GPs giving off? Well, (laughs) I don't know if if, uh, that would have made a huge difference to GPs, to be quite honest, but the... um, the Labor's big ticket uh, promise obviously was the $2.5 billion cancer package to reduce out-of-pocket costs for consultations and imaging. Um, uh, Labor would have taken the first steps towards universal dental coverage, which uh, I think there is a you know, good case for doing. Um, Labor would have instituted a health reform commission, which would have had a similar sort of status as the Productivity Commission, and, and that could have developed reforms at arm's length from politics and independently of the election cycle, rather than seeing a sprinkling of promises, you know, $10 million here, $5 million here, across the country in marginal seats. That's not a very integrated way to uh, reform and bolster the health system. Um, Labor had a slate of promises for preventive health, uh, which under the coalition is still, you know, fairly minimal. You're probably not going to see them introducing tougher measures on businesses that sell unhealthy food and alcohol. So things like a sugar tax or mandatory health star ratings. Uh, though we know there are problems with the, the, the star ratings, but um, other things with reformulation and advertising restrictions. We're unlikely to see any of those. And uh, there wasn't anything really from either side on the social determinants of health and de-siloing the ways in which we approach physical and mental health, which of course are massively affected by poverty and unemployment and poor housing. And what can we expect from private health? Private health insurance under Labor would have been subject to a Productivity Commission inquiry and would have had a 2% cap imposed on premium rises, uh, which would have been nice for policyholders. 
but with uh, declining rates of private coverage, the AMA is actually very anxious about the long-term sustainability of the private health sector and complementing the public system. So they're probably happy not to see that eroded any further. And uh, what else? Well, for Greg Hunt, uh, Health Minister, who knows, there, there could be a cabinet reshuffle, but um, I will say that people have no problem with him as Health Minister. They've got a lot of time for him, they say he listens and, and takes the job very seriously. I think the interesting thing was that we had Bob Hawke pass away mm. just days before the election, which a lot of people said would bring out a lot of nostalgia, particularly among the baby boomers. Um, seems like that didn't happen. Yeah, it doesn't seem to have, doesn't seem to have happened. Um, but I'm glad you raised Bob Hawke because we should remember that we do have a great healthcare system. Sure, there is room to improve it, but we do have Medicare and the PBS. And that is thanks to uh, thanks to Bob Hawke. Well, he um, achieved what Gough Whitlam couldn't. Gough Whitlam tried with Medibank, but that was a very controversial and difficult reform, and Fraser dumped it. But uh, Bob Hawke revived it, and um, importantly, he stayed in power long enough for universal health insurance to become bedded down and untouchable. And much as Scott Morrison's predecessors, John Howard and Tony Abbott, would have liked to erode Medicare. And if they'd had their way, we probably would be looking a little more like the US by now, where some people get amazing healthcare and other people can't afford it. Uh, but they couldn't touch it because Australians know what a good thing uh, that it is. And uh, Medicare was just one of Hawke and Keating's many major reforms that took a lot of political courage. And uh, it's a kind of political courage that we haven't seen in quite a while. And it's interesting that you bring up Tony Abbott, Penny, this the morning. former member for Warringah. Yes, Tony Abbott lost his seat on the weekend. Uh, but it wasn't just Tony Abbott who lost his seat. People were very surprised to see Karen Phelps, the doctor in the seat of Wentworth. She also lost her seat. Yes, Karen Phelps, the of course the former Australian Medical Association chief and GP, who took the seat of Wentworth from the Liberal Party, which had held it forever um, after Malcolm Turnbull's resignation. Uh, she has lost that again to Dave Sharma. And it's interesting, she wasn't the only doctor running on the weekend and also not the only former AMA president. We also had Dr Brian Aller running in the seat of Benelong and he was up against the Liberal candidate, John Alexander. It's a fairly... seat of the former Prime Minister. It is, former seat of uh, John Howard. But uh, even though he had a 3% swing in his favour, it wasn't enough uh, to win that seat. It is quite a Liberal stronghold. And I guess to wrap up the story of this election, from my perspective, was that Labor was running on a very bold campaign, a very risky campaign, and it didn't pay off. What do we make of that, Penny? Yeah, it, it, it's a disappointing indication that big reforms, whether it's you know, franking credits or negative gearing, things that touch people in the hip pocket, or climate change, which is not going to fix itself and might require bit of a sacrifice from members of the community. It looks like no good deed goes unpunished when it comes to ambitious reforms and it looks like we're going to see more of the small target, safe type of rhetoric that we've had so much of from this coalition government. Well, the opposite maybe. Labor will come back with an even stronger reform policy. Who knows? (laughs) Who knows? (laughs) It's hard to tell and it's uh, yet to be seen who will be the next leader for the Labour Party. Yeah, so who have we got running? Tanya Plibersek. The only confirmed uh, candidate at the moment is um, Anthony Albanese. 
at this stage. Yes, at he's stage. declared at, at the weekend, and um, I do believe that uh, Bill Shorten is back and Tanya Plibersek, the member for Sydney. Which is quite interesting, actually, to have an instance of a leadership challenge where there is two people from the Labour left potentially going up against each other for the leadership. It never usually happens from the same faction. Later in this episode, we're going to be talking about Indigenous health, specifically a training program in Sydney and Melbourne that's trying to teach urban GPs to be more culturally respectful. But worryingly, it seems to have failed. But before we get to that, we've got this week's hot topic. It's from Robbie Bedbrook, a practice nurse based in Sydney. Something I want to talk about today is trying to increase LGBTQI sensitivity within clinical practice and within clinical settings. My background as a nurse is in general practice, but also sexual health. So this is something I'm super passionate about, but I also just want to acknowledge from the forefront, acknowledge my privilege in talking about it because it's because of where I work, the location and the service that I work in. I fully acknowledge that it can be easier to talk about that and set those systems up, whereas in other areas it cannot be. There's obviously the um, overt insensitivity and discrimination that we always think about. But I think the one I really want to focus on, because it's something you can tangibly do in clinics, Um, are the way that our systems discriminate against the LGBTQI population. And the one I'm really thinking about is in relation to gender. So the systems that we currently have and use, things like uh, hot doc or best practice or medical director or whatever they are, um, are amazing and we can do so much with them, but they are usually linked to Medicare. And that can mean that the way that we have to enter and talk about gender within the system is really prescript. Uh, And so that can lead to, unfortunately, like accidentally misgendering people or forcing people to misgender themselves. And that already puts a patient on the back foot in a consult. But there are simple ways that you can overcome that. So you can redo your new patient form when people sign in. So instead of it just being saying sex and you have to write male, female or other, you could have a section that says um, like name, which would be per Medicare, preferred name, which is whatever you want it to be. And then in terms of gender, you could have sex assigned at birth, which relates to the birth certificate and usually relates to Medicare unless someone's changed that. I identify my gender as blank and they fill that in. And then my pronouns are, and then you just in service your reception staff to know where to enter those things. So at least when you pull that file up and you go out to the waiting room, you don't scream John when it's actually Lily. And you kind of know already. And that makes you think about, oh, okay, well, if this person's identified with a diverse gender, I should probably also just kind of touch on maybe mental health because I know that they're a more vulnerable population and um, find out are they in the middle of transitioning, therefore are they on hormone therapy, in which case I'll think about these things as well. Obviously, we're all doing whatever we can as healthcare workers to censor our unconscious bias when it comes to diverse sexualities and genders. We all have unconscious bias about lots of things. Think about all of your systems that currently exist like the posters that we display around clinics, are they all super, super heteronormative? And any sexual health thing is like two beautiful, straight white people. Yeah, and simple things like that, just to really kind of have a look at the space that you're working in and make sure it's not censoring anybody in that way. Uh, And then if you don't know how to do that yourself, there are like so many resources that you can tap into. You can look to the organizations that already work in this space. So the Gender Center in Sydney has some amazing resources. ACON has amazing resources. Reach Out is a youth mental health organization. They've got really good fact sheets to kind of upskill you and the staff. Um, there's accessing education online in terms of sexual health. There's ASHRAM. I'm sure you can hire independent 
consultants who do this kind of work as well, who can just kind of come in and audit your space and make sure that it's as approachable and welcoming for everybody as it can be, because you just don't want to make sure any patient's ever on the back foot because it's already quite hard to build, it can be hard to build rapport and you need to do whatever you can to not put your own barriers in your way because of that. Felicity, I know you've been spending hours on the phone in the recent weeks and you've been talking to Indigenous health experts. What did you find out? So there's this push in general practice at the moment to try and educate GPs about Indigenous health, specifically around this idea of cultural respect. And there's this program that's been rolled out in Sydney and Melbourne called Ways of Thinking and Ways of Doing, run by UNSW and the University of Melbourne. So essentially GPs who are in this program attend a half-day workshop um, they get a booklet, uh, which covers 10 scenarios to do with cross-cultural interactions. And they also get a cultural mentor, so someone they can call or see face-to-face for guidance. And it seems like a really good program, and the pilot was quite positive in its results. But in this study, which they published in the MJA, they had a negative finding. So it seemed like the intervention didn't significantly improve GP's cultural awareness, Uh, And it also didn't improve their use of chronic health um, consultations with Indigenous patients. Um, And usually we're all really happy to see negative results being published because there's such a a publication bias against negative results. Um, But in this instance, it was a bit concerning to me because we need interventions that work. Yeah, and it is an urgent problem really because the gap in quality of life is enormous as Indigenous Australians have an average life expectancy that's around eight years less and a mortality rate that's about 1.8 times more than non-Indigenous Australians. So what are we doing wrong and what do we do if these programs aren't working? That's a really good question and I really wanted to know the answer to that. So I went and asked Indigenous people who work in Indigenous health research and education what they thought was holding these programs back. And I got a mix of answers, but what it boils down to is this. It's really hard for white people to recognise that healthcare is a cultural activity in the first place. And if you can't recognise that, it's really hard to understand why you need to do anything differently. So I went and asked Dr Mark Locke, who's an Indigenous academic who researches cultural safety. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have a lot of uh, issues with going to hospital. Uh, they've been really alienating environments, not just the physical space, but the attitudes of health professionals. And just the fact that they're colonially constructed, you know, organisations, they're very hierarchical in their decision-making. It's you come to this physical structure and if you need help. Uh, so the whole thing about hospitals is such a tragic history. And so it's, it's an extension of that. So when we approach a hospital, it's a very alien environment and it's, it can feel... I approach a hospital, I'm sitting outside a hospital now, uh, and there's not one indicator that they care or respect Aboriginal people in this hospital. There's no flags, there's no art, there's nothing. So Indigenous health advocates have been trying to convince doctors to notice culture, their own and others, for years with limited success. 
Um, but without that self-awareness, that appreciation that we live in a cultural matrix that is geared in our favour as white people and English speakers, it's really hard to convince doctors and healthcare administrators that they need to change the way they deliver care so that people with culturally diverse backgrounds aren't completely put off by it. So there's so much to deal with on this front. What does this mean practically in the clinic? So Dr. Megan Williams, a senior lecturer at UTS in Indigenous Health and a Wiradjuri person, says this... So unless a person has that lens shift, unless they experience and education is deep enough for a person to be changed by it, they'll behave the same. You can't get there unless you do that immersive work and you don't do that immersive work unless you respect Aboriginal people as having something to offer. And I think that's the crux of the issue. There's not at all the concept that Aboriginal people have got something to offer because we're overrepresented in all the statistics on poor health. Therefore, we're seen as doing something wrong and people that need help. Mm-hmm. And how could we have something to offer if the statistics are showing that we're failing? But I believe what's failing is the mainstream system to deliver healthcare to Indigenous peoples as opposed to reorienting mainstream care to incorporate Indigenous ways to then reach Indigenous peoples. And more, because Indigenous models of healthcare are holistic and intergenerational and they encompass physical, mental, spiritual, emotional and environmental care, not just the physical. So really it's what we call actually comprehensive primary health care. Our Aboriginal community controlled health organisations have used that term for decades, comprehensive primary health care. So in my view, that's more nuanced, more complex and more informed than primary health care. Comprehensive meaning that we'll take into account more than just the issue that the person's presenting with and we'll have a model of care that means we can deal with more than the presenting issue and more than just the presenting person as well. So, you know, if we're going to spend millions on um, GP interventions and those training interventions, then they they won't work unless the GP is changed in a way that they can act more in accordance with Indigenous people's ways. So what are the main differences between what an Aboriginal health service can provide and what you may not see in your regular GP clinic? So Aboriginal health services have been doing multidisciplinary care for a really long time before it became quite popular. So often they'll have uh, bulk billing specialists who come to visit the practice um, so psychiatrists or physios or um, dentists will come in and offer the care then and there for the patient um, so the patient doesn't have to go and organize lots of different appointments um, they'll of- often do a lot of things that are outside of just primary care um, so they'll offer support with housing or they'll offer a fruit and vegetable box that's subsidized things that are really helping patients reach their health goals. When you're a disadvantaged patient, it's actually really hard to access some of these things. And the other thing they do is they often have Aboriginal health workers there. So it's not just um, 
a doctor with potentially a different cultural background to the Indigenous person. They've got those people who can work as intermediaries and really sort through some of those cultural um, differences. There's a lot of things that they do. They also have much longer consultations, so on average about 30 minutes, um, and it's really hard to be culturally sensitive in five minutes um, and learn anything about the patient. So longer consultations is a big, big one. So what I'm taking from this, there's a lot that all health professionals can think about, and it's just as much about uh, doing things in your own clinical practice as it is about actually having a lot of deeper self-reflection of why uh, you think the way that you think about health and delivery of health. And I guess after listening to this podcast, what could people do tomorrow? So the last point I was going to make is that it's actually not that hard. There are some really basic, simple steps that you can take to be respectful. And fortunately, respect is something that's quite similar in lots of different cultures. Um, It's things like making eye contact when the patient walks in the door, which is sometimes receptionists are super busy and they just don't make that, you know, five seconds to look up. But just that is something that one, one Indigenous health expert was saying is super important. The other thing was to ask people about what their ideas and expectations are about healthcare. So that's sort of inviting them to uh, tell you about their culture a little bit. And then some really simple things that you can do right now. So put some Indigenous art up in your practice, put up some posters inviting patients to identify as Indigenous, um, put up a sign saying that you respect the traditional owners of the land um, and engage with your local Aboriginal health service. Um, These things are not that hard and, and they really do make a huge difference. The most interesting thing I came across in my research was this diagram that explains the pathway to cultural competency or cultural proficiency. And you start off being quite far down the spectrum of cultural blindness, where you don't think the culture is important to recognize at all and you just ignore it. The next step is tokenism, where you start maybe, you know, hanging some artwork, hiring some Indigenous health workers, and you think, cool, I've done my job, moving on. And then the next step along that is really recognizing that people from a different cultural background have something that's really beautiful and valuable that is important to engage with and really bringing that in and and not just trying to assimilate people from other cultures into your culture, but really giving a little bit of ground and giving some space to other people who have something really important to offer. Um, And just seeing that diagram and it's printed in our magazine was really helpful for me to recognize like where we are on that journey. And I don't think I'm really there yet because I don't know enough but hopefully, you know, by learning more, you, you get there eventually. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much for sharing with us, Felicity. It was really interesting. And you can read Felicity's full feature and all that extra information in our magazine or online. Uh, but now it's time for our quirky historical fact of the week. So legend has it that there was this Englishman called Edward Mordrake who had a face on the back of his head. Like Professor Krill in Harry Potter? Yeah, just like that. So Edward Mordrake called it his devil twin and said that it whispered to him at night and he lived in complete seclusion, refusing visits from even members of his own family. And he said this of his condition. For some unforgiven wickedness of my forefathers, I am knit to this fiend. For a fiend it surely is. I beg and I beseech you to crush it out of human semblance, even if I die for it. 
So Edward died at the age of 23, apparently, and the case was written up by American physician George Golden in his 1896 book called Anomalies and Curiosities of Medicine. But no one really knows if it actually happened. It's very hard to fact check. Um, but there is actually a rare medical condition called craniophagus parasitis, where a parasitic twin um, is attached to the head uh, and it's got an undeveloped body. So it could kind of look like what was described in this case. But a lot of people on the internet reckon it's a hoax. People on the internet, that's good source, yeah, very academic. This, this section is really highly researched. Look, I didn't want to leave down a rabbit hole fact-checking this section, um, but if anyone knows anything more about this medical condition, um, if we've got any medical historians who are listening, please help us out by getting in touch at felicity at medicalrepublic.com.au or francine at medicalrepublic.com.au. And we're loving all the other feedback as well, so keep tweeting at us. Oh, um, yeah, so this week we got um, a nice message from GP and health writer Dr. Alice Lamb um, just saying thanks for the eye-opening episode on smallpox vaccinations and how vaccines can exert extra effects beyond their intended actions. Um, so she said she was relatively new to health writing and loved listening to our great content to inspire her writing. How nice is that? <laughs> That's great to hear. So that can be found at episode 11 of season one if you wanted to check that out yourself. So that's it for this episode. Next week, we've got Francine reporting from GPCE in Sydney. And who did you interview over the weekend? Yeah, so it was a very busy conference over the weekend, uh, both election weekend and also the GPCE, which was buzzing. Uh, There were some great sessions. A lot of the focus was on aged care and management in the community. Uh, The pesky MVS, which we'll be looking at in a lot of detail next week. Uh, We have an interview coming up for next episode with Dr. April Armstrong about item numbers in the MBS that GPs aren't billing and should really start using in their practice. They're called Lost MBS Item Numbers. Yeah, the session was called Raiders of the Lost Item Numbers, which is very fitting. Oh, we're going to have to find some music to fit with that. Yeah, (laughs) see you next time.